0: Hey, Toby. Hey, Darian. So, you know, we've been doing this podcast for a bit.
1: Yeah, like a couple years now?
0: <clears throat> it feels like it. it. feels like I've been talking to you for a long time.
1: Yeah. <laughs>
0: probably, <laughs> probably longer than a couple years. You know, there's this thing that I feel like tends to happen. I think we were talking about it the other day, offline, not on the podcast, about how sometimes you just start referencing things, and then, like, you reference a concept, and uh, let's say, like, the coefficient for gravity Um, and you don't ever really, like, examine, like, well, why, why, why do I understand that that way? Like, you just take it for granted. Somebody else did the work, you, uh, the concept is sort of fixed in your mind, and then everything else is like, all right, I'm just not going to even examine that. And, uh, I realized, you know, we have a fundamental, uh, principle in our podcast that we have left, uh, unexamined.
1: Oh, man. Stories or robots?
0: No, no. Although, we might. I think we've examined both of those things plenty. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm at um, a loss then. Oh, well, um, so, you know, we have this thing at the end of every show, Apocalypse or Utopia. We, we judge, you know, any tech trend or any, anything that we're seeing happening out in the world according to this, uh, this 1 to 10 Apocalypse or Utopia scale. Uh, and I realized, you know what I really don't know anything about? What? The Apocalypse. Hi, this is Darian Bates.
1: And this is Dr. Tobias Wilson-Bates.
0: And this is The Stories We Tell Our Robots. It's the podcast about how we make our
1: technology. And how our technology makes us. Oh, man, what you, you you're questioning our, our, our scientific <laughs> numerical system.
0: <laughs> exactly, exactly. I mean, I, we, we are we are never one to be to be to play fast and loose with, um, you know, a quantifiable system for evaluating anything. But uh, yeah, like, <laughs> like I actually I realized uh, the other day that I actually don't know what uh, the apocalypse actually means. I know, I know what I think it means. I certainly know what our scale seems to indicate that it means.
1: Uh, but I actually don't know what it means. Hmm. Is, I, I, I mean, are there any experts in the apocalypse?
0: <laughs> well, given
1: uh,
0: I mean, depending on how you define the apocalypse, I'm sure there are people who either have studied it or maybe even potentially lived through one. Um, but I think given the nature of uh, the way that we explore things, I think there might be there might be a particular person who is uh, an interesting perspective on this uh, subject and I thought uh, we should just like invite her in to talk
1: oh yeah I mean I think that sounds brilliant I've I've right you know it it makes me think a little bit to tee this up a little uh, uh, Frank Kermode he has this book called uh, the sense of an ending studies in the theory of fiction that's actually all Mm -hmm. about how endings sort of define uh, define ourselves and define our lives that uh, by understanding the ending or a moment of crisis, which is to say a moment of judgment that that signals some kind of ending like an apocalypse we can suddenly understand the sort of stories and genres that we circulate within um,
0: I don't know what that means let's <laughs> <laughs> well, right. I mean, the simplest,
1: the simplest way I think about this is you know uh, let's say you've lived a, a, a pretty happy life and then right at the end of your life it's discovered that you were a serial killer <laughs> that, <laughs> suddenly that changes the complexion of everything that came before that, like this moment of crisis, this moment of judgment and the apocalypse seems like it, it would serve that it, in some interesting ways that, that how things end determine how we think about everything that led up to the ending like comedy or tragedy yeah. You know?
0: yeah, No, absolutely well, so there is a, a particular person that I'm excited to bring on the pod today. Uh, her name is Mar- Marley Jane Ward. Um, she is actually, I, I mean, I, m- maybe a little bit of a self-proclaimed expert. Actually, I will proclaim her an expert. I think she demurs from the t- subject or from the title of expert <laughs> in general. Um, but she runs the uh, podcast uh, Pod, which basically our uh, conversations uh with various people um often writers or experts in in fields related to uh possible causes of end times say climate change perhaps um and she there's, there's a whole
1: genre climate... called cli-fi apparently oh really uh, climate fiction it's like uh, it's similar to science <laughs> science fiction but this is specifically about you know the climate
0: it sounds it sounds uh like science fiction except for more sanctimonious. Yeah. Um <laughs> and uh and but she but um Marley examines kind of the narratives of basically of apocalypses and like how we tell the stories of apocalypses, everything from yeah, things that people are talking about around um climate change all the way to, to the zombie apocalypse. So I oh, thought Right, which I feel like, on the likelihood of happening, I mean, a zombie apocalypse is a little bit outside our um, wheelhouse, but I certainly feel like, um, at least from a, from a narrative standpoint, they actually, now that I think about it, zombie apocalypse is exactly the kind of things we talk about, <laughs> at least metaphorically <laughs> speaking. So, uh, yeah, so I went to invite her on, um, maybe have a conversation with her, talk about the apocalypse and see if our, uh, our 1 to 10 Apocalypse Utopia rating scale still holds up by the end of this.
1: Huh, I love it. Let's do it. I'm in.
0: All right. Well, um, we are here today with um, Marley Jane Ward. Um, Marley Jane Ward is a writer, reader, um, which is better than most of us, and, uh, and self-described weirdo from Melbourne, Australia. Her short fiction is published in Interfiction's Terraform, Apex, Aure- Aurealis, I think yeah. is the right way to say that, and and more, et more. Uh, her debut novella, Welcome to Orphan Corp, won the Viva La Novella Prize and the Victorian Premier's Literary Award for Young Adult Fiction. And she produces the podcast uh, Catastropod, which is, while I'm sure all the other literary exploits are uh, impressive in their own right, Catastropod is why she's here. Um, which is an exploration of the apocalypse in myth and media uh, with a caveat that it is, in fact, probably mostly media. <laughs> uh, welcome.
2: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: Ah, we are excited to have you come on. Um, I feel like we are we are mere um, amateurs when it comes to the apocalypse, and you have certainly <laughs> taken this to to another level.
2: Well, I'm just obsessed with the notion of apocalypses. Um, I am a big fan of reading and watching apocalyptic media. Um, I wouldn't call my myself an expert by any. Um, stretch of the imagination but I have I have a great personal interest in it so that's sort of where that springs from
0: well I feel like you might be um, you might be setting a high bar for expertise
3: (laughs) Um,
0: (laughs) I I think I think we we claim the mantle on occasion I think for for far less than what you have uh, been working on so far so you know we we, obviously we are really interested in talking with you partially because uh, well a because you are a delightful person to talk to um, oh, and we love the podcast. But also, I think this, you know, we've we've kind of embraced this concept of um, apocalypse as a kind of a trope in our podcast, um, which we will get to at some point. Um, but the idea of kind of this, this rating scale that we've always done as something is, whether judging some sort of trend as either apocalyptic or utopian, um, and we really haven't spent a lot of time actually examining that rating scale. And we thought, you know, who better to talk to than someone who has spends a lot of time thinking about the apocalypse <laughs> or the concept of the apocalypse to 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 really I- examine that?
2: Yeah, so I probably spend way too much time thinking about the apocalypse, and I certainly spend a lot of time talking about it um, with my guests and forcing them to think about the apocalypse and sort of their own um, potential experience of it. So yeah, I've got I've got the end times on my mind. Um, I'm currently writing. Uh, what I like to call pre apocalyptic fiction mm. so um i 've been doing a fair amount of research on that um, and I sort of really enjoy the distinct genre of pre apocalyptic um, media, so things like children of men and Utopia, uh, which is a British series. Um, are specifically pre-apocalyptic, and I find that notion to be sort of really interesting and different from the usual narratives of, of post-apocalyptic fiction.
1: Now, mm-hmm. when, you, when you talk about post-apocalyptic, is, is there a weird kind of indexing to it? Because I've heard, I feel like things like the rapture or Armageddon or the post-human, or, like, do you find that kind of indexing useful? Do you feel like these all just fall under one sort of umbrella term?
2: Well, they do fall under the umbrella term of apocalyptic. Um, But I really like sort of sorting them into their subgenres of pre-apocalyptic, apocalyptic apocalyptic, and post-apocalyptic. And they all sort of have their different tropes and different um, sort of methods of storytelling. So I I find them all really interesting. But like I said, I, I sort of, I'm developing a more um, vested interest in pre-apocalyptic fiction and sort of everything that leads up to the apocalypse and sort of the the root causes of it.
0: Absolutely, and I and I think here's a nice time to uh, to stop for a second and say, um, wow, let's examine this term, <laughs> apocalypse, because it's one of those terms that I feel like we throw around uh, with this idea that 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 we almost like with this implication that everyone knows what we're talking about. And I'm not even sure that we know what we're talking about sometimes when we throw around that term. So so and it doesn't seem like everyone's definition is, in fact, the same. So maybe, maybe starting with you, uh, how do you even understand the concept um, of the apocalypse?
2: So to me, the apocalypse is sort of the end of the status quo and the beginning of a new status quo. So when I think of the apocalypse, so my mind, of course, goes to the wasteland concept, because that's what a lot of the media I've consumed presents or the empty world scenario but really when you think about it the apocalypse Mm. is sort of a drastic change to our way of life resulting in a new Mm. way of life that's really different from the old one um and i guess in that sense apocalypses have sort of been happening throughout history Mm. to various people and cultures and they will continue to happen um somebody's regular life is another person's apocalypse Um, and you can look at sort of uh, small personal apocalypses at the same time um, as sort of falling Mm. into that into that narrative.
0: So that's really interesting because it then seems like we've we've kind of come into this idea that there is sort of uh, I guess pre and post apocalyptic and I guess there's 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 enough now examples out there of also I don't know what would the what would the current apocalyptic i don't know what is what is it, the it's middle just apocalyptic I <laughs> it's just a, right right exactly um but it so it makes it seem like there's very like this duality it's you you're either in a pre-apocalyptic space but it's actually like it seems like there's actually uh you're always in one of those others and you can be in either at any point i mean toby i'm interested in your perspective as well in terms of how you kind of understand this this concept as you know through to the fiction that you've worked on and studied and taught etc. Oh,
1: oh yeah, well I mean my, my dissertation took up a lot of stuff on time machines which I think is so interesting that there's this moment you know H G Wells is writing at the end of the 19th century uh, with this kind of uh, science fetish but like the one of the one of the main things he does in the time machine is is reestablish the inevitability of the apocalypse by taking the time machine to the the entropic death of the planet but then also going backwards in time, so you end up with this weird kind of mishmash, which I think Marley's saying it really well, like this is kind of, that the pre and post and uh, apocalypse all sort of exist at the same time, but they, it's almost like by scale they coexist. Uh, so you almost have this sort of, mm-hmm. this, this weird multi-temporality uh, that, that come that, that brings with it a whole bunch of uh, relations because they all circle around this gravity of, of apocalypse. Um, so, I mean, sorry, that, that was a bit of a tangent, but... Um, I'd I'd love to hear maybe some examples of of, of how you circulate this in your own work. You know, like when you create a character who's pre-apocalyptic, like how do you mark that as a unique kind of thing?
2: Oh, that's an interesting question. Um, I guess pre-apocalyptic kind of deals a lot with anxiety and future fear. And that's sort of something that I'm exploring at the moment in the new piece that I'm working on. I tried to describe it to a friend and he called it, it's not necessarily science fiction or speculative fiction, but he called it retro speculative. So it's taking a a potential Mm. apocalyptic scenario from the past and sort of exploring that. Um, So what I'm doing now is is sort of trying to pick up on those anxieties and that fear for the future um, and the feeling of inevitability that that things will come to an end regardless of whether the event actually happens or not
3: Mm -hmm.
2: even even if it doesn't that person's still going through a form of apocalypse in that that situation is going to make their life very different uh, from what it was before and it's going to disrupt the status quo um, regardless. Oh, to be that.
3: fair, it
0: feels like that maybe you've just described a Jonathan Franzen novel.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm really interested in in personal apocalypses. Um, so I was listening to a mm, podcast mm-hmm. recently about uh, Y2K, and um, which is called Surviving Y2K. It's from uh, I can't remember Headway Headlong, um, and in that. Um, within the framework of the larger potential apocalypse that's happening, uh, the creator of the podcast goes through his own personal apocalypse Mm -hmm. where everything completely changes and the entire way of life um, alters after a specific event. And so I find that really interesting, exploring Mm -hmm. the small personal apocalypses that happen to people on a day-to-day basis
0: it's it's really interesting because because i i I love your kind of very personal exploration of it because you know i've always come from this or my my sense of it has come from this kind of almost the opposite side of it which is this this kind of massive event that is like presaged with these these four horsemen uh which i realize that i've i've always heard of that trope of the four horsemen Uh, of the apocalypse but i I literally did not look it up until now so thanks (laughs) wikipedia um so here's the thing that wikipedia says it is because i'm i'm fascinated by this definition of how they describe it because um when you start like when you start doing the the at least the wikipedia rabbit hole exploration of this (laughs) uh, you realize how contradictory and how weirdly divergent um not just the understanding of is, but even the how like how attractive or how appealing the apocalypse is it feels like it goes from people being like this is an, like they're almost looking forward to it all the way to like this is like the worst thing ever so this is this is you know yes i am literally reading wikipedia um so great radio here um <laughs> Uh, but so yada yada yada. The uh, the theologian, theologians, and popular culture differ on the first on the first horseman. The four riders are often seen as symbolizing conquest or pestilence, which again, okay, <laughs> like uh, either of those conquest or pestilence uh, don't seem like the same thing. Uh, and less frequently, the Christ or the Antichrist, uh, <laughs> war, f- famine, and death. Um, and then, and then, really, the Christian apocalyptic vision is that the four horsemen are set to a divine apocalypse, um, or some, or harbingers of the last judgment. Um, but then another reading ties the four horsemen to the history of the Roman Empire, subsequent to the area in which the era in which the Book of Revelation was written as a symbolic prophecy. So, you know, going back to this kind of very Christian. View or Roman Christian view of the apocalypse?
2: (laughs) Well, I didn't grow up with religion, so I had never really thought much about the Christian version of the apocalypse until quite recently when I started delving into it a little for research for the thing that I'm working on now. Um, What I find really interesting about sort of apocalyptic narratives uh, in early religious texts is that, um, well, first of all, the word apocalyptic, I think, comes from Revelation, um, meaning and i think mm. it means the re- revelation of secrets um oh. which i find yeah which i found kind of interesting and so um say you're looking at the story of noah and the ark um that not only appears in the bible but stories of great floods and arks are also in the works of babylonians uh hindu uh the quran so it's like we have this um this shared apocalyptic story that comes out of, um, out of religion and not just one religion, but all. So one thing that that sort of idea makes me think is that we've been apocalyptic for a while now. So if you think that the book of Revelation is sort of um, talking about the fall of Rome, um, then mm-hmm. we've, we've been post-apocalyptic for a really long time. Um, But apocalypses have been happening (laughs) as long as people have been living, which is, I guess, why they're written about so much and sort of why they feature in those early texts so much. Um, But that concept Mm -hmm. of apocalypse is a drastic change to the status quo and the new beginning. Um, What I find really interesting is that Christian mythology presents the apocalypse as bought by God. um, But when really when you think about it, these days apocalyptic narratives... um, all sort of seem to have the apocalypse being wrought by man um and there's there's Mm -hmm. no rapture sort of taking us to a better place in modern apocalyptic texts um but some cataclysmic sort Mm -hmm. of change or event to life on this planet that that will leave us in a far worse situation with no mystical reward for the faithful
0: right (laughs) Yes, it's, a, it's actually, a, it feels like it's a pretty bleak view if like previously your view of the apocalypse was like some, of, some people will be elevated into some sort of uh, Edenic state. Now it's just we're, we're kind of all in sort of the, uh, <laughs> we're all just left in a, in a uh, kind of a, a worse place. Except for, again, except for the fact that it, it doesn't seem to answer this other question of like, but then what happens after that?
2: Well, am I allowed to swear in this podcast?
0: Sure, we'll just we'll we'll bleep it out with a, with with funny well, noises. It's no, a, yeah, it's no, a very
2: Australian <laughs> saying, but modern apocalypse is we all seem to be in the <laughs> You know, <when, laughs> <Mm-mm. laughs> we're we're not going anywhere better, um, and that's kind of what I find really interesting about sort of the the contrast between Christian apocalypse and and um, the rapture and that kind of thing. Because I'm reading a bit about the rapture at the moment for research. Mm-hmm and that notion of sort of the faithful get to ascend to a higher plane and the rest of us sort of live in what remains of the world. It is a pretty bleak view, but it's a different kind of bleak view mm-hmm. to the, to the modern apocalyptic narrative, which is that, you know, where we're all in the so to speak.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And there's something really magnificent about that too. You know, this, uh, There's this theorist Gerard Jeanette uh, in this book, Narrative Discourse, he talks about how all books read forwards and backwards so that the end of the book also interprets all of the things that you read leading up to the end. So right, like Mm. Romeo and Juliet isn't a comedy because they don't get married at the end, you know, (laughs) like that uh, the the end of the book determines everything that comes before the ending in in a particular Mm. kind of way. And as soon as you get to the ending, it it teaches you. and if you get to the ending, and if some people get raptured and some people don't, like that that's a certain kind of information. But if you get to the ending, it's almost like a comedy, you know? Where it's like if, if the mm. tragic mode is supposed to show us people who are better than us falling lower than us, and the comedic mode is supposed to give us everyday life, uh, according to some theorists, uh, then like being in the... Uh, to use your term, <laughs> is, uh, it's kind of magnificent. Because it's, it, it's sort of like the ending is... To live in the now, in a way.
2: Well, yeah, I mean, mm. that sort of goes to the the whole notion of the apocalypse being a new beginning. And I, I think mm-hmm. that's one reason why the apocalypse is uh, so pervasive is that everybody sort of aches for a new beginning. And I'll, I've, I've, I've written mm. a lot about, I've, I've sort of, in, in my research for this podcast, I've sort of explored a lot of that kind of um, stuff and I'll, I'll talk about, about that more later. But um, yeah, I, I like the idea of the apocalypse as a new beginning.
0: No, I think that's great. Now, I, I guess one question I have, um, like, it just feels like there's a question of volume. I feel like it is a thing that like, like it seems like everything seems either like literally apocalyptic, um, you know, zombie apocalypse, you know, Netflix, I think as a whole could probably you know, has spent billions probably at this point on uh, on various types of shows, or so you have Walking Dead, or those kinds of those kinds of things. But even even shows that I think actually really do qualify as essentially pre-apocalyptic. I think you know, um, Children of Men, I think, is a great example, um, where it's like, yeah, we're not there yet, but it kind of feels like I mean, you could be you could argue that like documentaries are feeling pre-apocalyptic right now. But it does it does sort of feel like there's. Like everything feels tinged by this, but you know, in reality, is are we more apocalyptic than in the past, or is this just is this always well, been pervasive?
2: One thing that I was thinking recently is that, um, so I have a newsletter with um, with a bunch of other writers and sort of thinkers uh, here in Australia, and um, a- as a response to one of the articles that someone had posted, uh, it sort of kicked up kicked off this thought in my mind of sort of people have this notion maybe that we're in the lead up or in a pre-apocalyptic state um, or a pre-dystopian state, whereas I kind of think that we're in the dystopian state now and thinking about, Mm. I'm thinking more about what comes after. Maybe what we're doing now is living through the, the dystopian state and what we're doing to fight that sort of dictate the utopia that might come afterwards i don't know maybe that's Mm -hmm. me just being an eternal optimist but but perhaps we're already living (laughs) through the apocalypse right now maybe we're less pre-apocalyptic at this point in time and more in the process which is interesting and it sort of leaves Mm -hmm. room for a new beginning uh to begin after this let's call it turbulent time
1: yeah, no, mm-hmm. I, I'm on board with this. I, I have a professor, Timothy Morton. This is his whole thing: is that like climate change has already happened. Like, all of the all of the disasters in terms of carbon load in the atmosphere and mass extinction events and this sort of thing have already come to pass. Like they're measurable. Mm. They've already, they've, they've already the the massive melting and die offs and you know pollution. Well, I can, t-
2: I can tell you right now that Australia is currently living. Um, so we've had. A number of massive heat waves over the past few weeks. Um, and I was reading about a, that. Yeah, and South Australia is actually recorded as the hottest place on the planet. Um, I think it was last week at 40. Wow. Oh, don't quote me on it, but I think it could have been 48 degrees, 49 degrees uh, Celsius. I, I'm not we quite no, sure what We have that no is. idea what you're talking yeah. about. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure what that is in Fahrenheit, but. um <laughs> but, yeah, so I feel like Australia is definitely uh, – and I can tell you on some of those uh, – in Melbourne, it got to 40, 45, 46. And on some of those days, it damn well felt apocalyptic. I can tell you that.
0: Mm-hmm. So well, that and notion I see. of – simultaneously- Simultaneously, right now in Chicago, where we have I have a lot of family, I think they are uh, they're at like negative six negative sixty Fahrenheit, wind chill.
1: Yeah, whatever. I, I don't know 60 what that is wind by Celsius. Chill, which is which, is which is
0: which is Fahrenheit, right? Which is like literally people are dying um, going outside. I think there've been seven deaths, I think, in the Midwest through just for for exposure. Um, so in the opposite, we're having these kind of extremes uh, on the opposite sides of the planet, both of which feel um, yeah, they, I think they—they both seem to be there. There's there's family newsletters going around with people just talking about the weather, uh, yeah. in, in apocalyptic terms.
2: Yeah, that doesn't surprise me. And coming from Australia, like, you know how there's that trope of talking about the weather being like a really boring sort of ho hum humdrum kind of thing to talk about. Whereas mm. in Australia, talking about the weather is a national pastime, especially in <laughs> Melbourne. <laughs>
0: Nice. Yes, I, I think my, my total familiarity with Melbourne usually involves the, um, the Australian Open. Um, I remember the, the, the tennis player Patrick Rafter, who used to make this whole um, show of wearing the zinc oxide um, yeah. uh, sunscreen on his nose. So the whole, his just had like a white nose the whole time he played tennis, which yeah, I, well, uh, I always felt was sort of like really calling attention to it.
2: The Australian Open is actually was just going on and games had to be stopped because, because of the heat. Um because some of those right. days were so apocalyptically bloody hot um that 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 the players mm. physically could not could not play um which is sort of an interesting tie back isn't it
0: exactly and and it just strikes me toby to one to your point it it makes me think about when i was uh when I was younger and you we you know used to like if you were like on a hike up a mountain or something and you would see like a cloud shrouding the mountain and you were like oh, God, I wonder what it's going to be like when we enter that cloud. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you're like, do you ever enter it? Like, you never really feel like there's a, there's a place in which you enter it, but suddenly you're like, you're surrounded by it, and you can notice that you're in it. But the entry and the exit of it are fairly subtle changes, and yet, like, there, are, there is a time when you can see it from the outside and you can realize that you're on the inside of it. It's it does like feel the, a little bit like...
2: It's like the frog in the pot of boiling water. Or the the <laughs> pot of water that exactly. slowly starts boiling. I haven't heard this exactly. one. That sounds well,
1: that sounds insane.
0: Oh, you have Oh, this is this is a crazy this is a crazy thing. Do you want to you want to briefly explain this incredible uh, the, the the science of what is it acclimation?
2: Yeah. So this, if you
0: principle of
2: If you have a pot of boiling water and you drop a frog in the the frog will jump immediately out. But if you take a pot of water and heat it to start boiling and put the frog in the frog doesn't jump out because it's acclimatizing slowly to the the heat until it inevitably boils and dies
1: wow and that... isn't
2: isn't that a metaphor for what we're going through right now <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah it, it I think does feel... i think we can end the pod i think you nailed it <laughs> yeah exactly
0: well so to to switch from kind of these broader kind of concepts into so so you know you i will say that when i when i was uh Saw your your the title Catastropod. I I think I was expecting something very different when I started listening to it Uh, It is a very upbeat uh, Pleasant uh, podcast you you have you uh, you in the conversations that we have you you seem endlessly optimistic Um, So what do you find what is personally compelling about the apocalypse given the fact that for the most part? Uh, you seem fairly fairly uh, well-balanced, all things considered.
2: <laughs> That's an interesting statement about me. Uh, <laughs> but, <laughs> oh,
0: I'm making some it's huge assumptions. Yeah, that was kind of an insult,
1: maybe. Uh, well,
2: the... <laughs> I find that the... Like, I'm, a, I'm an eternal optimist. I'm a realist. I believe we're screwed. But I'm pretty hopeful regardless. You know, I think that humanity is going to pull through... Um, even though we're actively involved in the process of our own destruction um but i've got a great big smile on my face right now as i say that like i'm I'm just an <laughs> eternal i'm an eternal optimist and um maybe that's to my detriment i don't know but yeah i i feel like so when you're saying like what do i find compelling about the apocalypse like i think that these narratives are so appealing to us because they give us sort of a glimpse into what we could be and what we could do given the right circumstances Mm -hmm. um so when i was a kid and reading post-apocalyptic novels it gave me this sense of adventure that i find super appealing um the whole empty world sort of narrative from books like the stand which i read very young um can be super compelling to a child because the world is yours for the taking No parents, no government, it's Mm. like true freedom and the world's like a candy store in which you've got to adventure. Um, But what I find really compelling about the idea of the apocalypse and what I think a lot of adults find compelling about this idea is that the apocalypse means that the humdrum of life that we live right now, paying bills, going to work, adulting, as we millennials say, um, Mm -hmm. all of that goes away. (laughs) And it leaves us with this new world order and a new way of life that's radically different from everything that we've experienced before. And I think that that's why the apocalypse is so appealing to people because it's this notion of, um, of a new beginning um, and the question of what comes after is suddenly no longer a case of, well, the rest of my life will be living like this and paying these bills and doing this job. Um, when the apocalypse comes, Mm -hmm. you know, you could be anything. And that, I think, is very seductive to people. And it also sort of gives people the ability to test themselves. And I think that human beings love to test themselves and love to see what they can endure and what they can do and what they can survive. I was reading um, a bunch of articles sort of as research for this podcast just to sort of refresh my memory and help me sort of collect my thoughts what I was going to say and I found this great article by a person called Chandra Phelan who wrote uh, their dissertation on um, apocalyptic fiction and they said and this is a quote because I wrote it down um, we can only see the world the way we've been raised to the way our parents saw it so we need to raise the old world and build a new one in its place in order to have a world that is really and entirely our own and I thought that that was really perfect mm-hmm. sort of that ownership of 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 the new world for a new age what's interesting about that
0: is you know that you have you have uh, kind of your own trope on the uh, on catastropod, uh... where you kind of always go you you ask each guest essentially how, how you think they would do or at least the ones that i've listened to they, I, I can't say i've listened to every single one yet but uh... Um, uh, how they would do in kind of after the apocalypse, um, and it's it's funny because when we when we talk about the likely apocalypse versus how are you going to do in a zombie apocalypse, um, it actually feels like those two skill sets are kind of different. Like our fantastical view of the apocalypse and the actual view of what might what mm. we maybe should what skills really matter post-apocalypse uh, seem, seem maybe different. Um, so uh, I don't know, I, I, I'm interested in your view because I think one of the things that is almost universally the case, and it may have to do with who you're interviewing, uh, nobody seems really confident that yeah. they would survive in at least a zombie <laughs> <Yeah>. apocalypse. Well,
2: <laughs> when, you, when you mentioned this on sort of the run sheet, like that, that we might talk about something like this, I actually wrote like quite a lot. Um, I like to collect my thoughts beforehand. Otherwise, I find that I ramble quite a lot and don't quite answer the question. So it was nice <laughs> to have a little bit of an outline of what we might talk about. Um, so sort of in response to that, um, I think that so many of my guests on Catastropod thinking that they wouldn't fare well in the apocalypse is because a lot of people today don't feel particularly capable. So modern life has made mm. us really maybe complacent is the right word. Um, I don't think many people have have the had the chance to test themselves to see what they're made of. And they don't feel confident that they could depend on themselves in any kind of extreme situation. Um, So I think a lot of my guests would actually surprise themselves with what they were capable of doing if they had to rise to the occasion. Um, But that being said, most Mm -hmm. of my guests are writers... Uh, So they have great (laughs) imaginations, which I think would be a useful skill in the apocalypse, but the lack of physical prowess that maybe comes with writing leaves them feeling (laughs) less confident about their odds of survival. Um, So I guess what it takes to survive an apocalypse sort of varies according to the narrative. Like what kind of apocalypse are we talking about? Mm -hmm. If you're surviving a global pandemic, that sort of seems to rest on like a random quirk of immunity or spontaneous remission of your symptoms, both of which are completely out of your hands. Um, Surviving climate apocalypses might depend on your financial status and your ability to flee various Mm -hmm. parts of the world for safer climates. Um, Nuclear apocalypse, you can survive sort of through resources like a bunker or a specific location or geographical quirk. So it depends on what kind of scenario that you're looking at to really know what it might take to survive. Mm -hmm. So I think that attributes that would make the person more capable of surviving, um, the first of all is tenacity. I think that plays like a huge role in survival, Mm -hmm. that sort of particular kind of stubbornness towards life that insists that you will survive despite the circumstances and that you refuse to give up. Um, Adaptability is, probably a really handy trait to have if you can constantly reassess situations and adapt to new circumstances that would definitely increase your chance of survival and in the same vein I think that decisiveness plays a big role so in lots of stories of survival that Mm -hmm. I've read because I have an obsession with reading uh stories of survival um things like touching the void and into thin air and um Mm. between a rock and a hard place um So you often hear that the person who does survive those situations was making active decisions rather than passively letting the situation um, just sort of happen to them. Mm -hmm. And, of course, there's the folks who have particular skill sets like the ability to find food and shelter and fire and water. Um, And I think Mm -hmm. a lot of people in urban areas lack these skills, but they can be taught, whereas the other qualities are more innate to a person. And last of all, I think luck plays a huge role in survival, Um, but you do know what they say, Mm -hmm. you make your own luck.
0: No, it's funny because I I was talking with Toby a while back about um, the the apocalypse and and whether people feel like they're capable of surviving the apocalypse. And we were joking about, um, you know, pre-Victorian era uh, England in particular. We're saying, if you told somebody, it's like, all right, you're going to have to grow your own food, and you're going to have to, and, and and you may be attacked at some point. You're going to have to be able to defend yourself. It's like, well, this is, this is life. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not entirely certain that this is, the, the roads aren't going to be well policed. It's like, okay, like that, <laughs> that seems to be just, just existence. Um uh, I, I will say that when, you know, in, in all seriousness, um, we do trade, trade text sometimes, I think during particularly, um, uh, when things happen in the, in the United States where we, we kind of, uh, are like, oof, yeah, like it, it feels a little bit more apocalyptic today than other days or something like that. Uh, we trade text and it's like, we both have children. And the question of like, well, gosh, what, what should we be teaching our kids, um, To survive uh, the inevitable oncoming apocalypse. (laughs) Um, And the thing that I always feel more so, that kind of my immediate response was, and we kind of got, like, I was thinking about texting something, and Toby texted back exactly that. um, uh, Cooperation,
3: Mm. the ability
0: to, like, bring groups together and work together, um, which is always, to me, has always felt like the opposite of how people seem to be a kind of like reactionarily preparing for the apocalypse um, there's, this, you know, there's this tendency in, or there's this, this trend um, kind of the softness that people are worried about having so you suddenly had this explosion of like crossfit gyms in the United States which are these?
2: I think that um, a lot of apocalyptic scenarios sort of seem to have that every man for himself kind of mentality yeah. whereas in actuality it would be it would be a case of, of coming together as, com- as small communities um, because not everybody's gonna yeah. have the same skill sets. Different people are gonna bring different skills to the table and in actuality co- cooperation probably would be one of the key sort of traits to survival.
0: Right, I mean, human, human beings and are, have, their entire kind of evolutionary history has been, they've, they've been successful as a species entirely because of their um, ability to cooperate in full. So it feels like, why would we abandon that one most adaptive trait uh, at the time of greatest, uh, greatest, uh, material stress? Yeah, I, w- I was
1: just, uh, I was just reading a piece in the Atlantic this morning about there's a new evolutionary theory out because uh, apparently uh, little known to me, we don't know as much about the evolution of humans as we thought we did. Like they keep on, Who they keep on discovering timelines that mess things up. Like, uh, I-, I think like, Tools were being used like 250,000 years ago, and fire was probably being used, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, like hundreds of thousands of years before we realized it in terms of cooking and all this sort of thing. But uh, what the what the guy proposed is that actually the way uh, humans evolved is by uh, sort of well, what he's proposed because he's relating it to bonobos is likely kind of ruling councils of uh, women targeting and eliminating. Uh, violent men.
2: <laughs> Problematic men. I like this idea. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah.
0: Nice. It's like, it's like a Gillette ad. Yeah. yeah.
2: Okay, so, so one thing that I haven't really talked too much about in Catastropod and and what I want to talk about, and I actually have an episode in the future where I do talk more about it, is the idea that during the apocalypse, women become chattel which is mm-hmm. a very pervasive narrative from apocalyptic fiction and it's kind of depressing to sort of read the same stories over and over again and seeing that women tend to fall into uh, the the role of chattel to be sort of lorded over and mm-hmm. traded and that kind of thing. Um, and so I think that that's when I find a narrative that doesn't, go down that path and doesn't embrace those tropes Mm -hmm. that's what i find really refreshing because you know you see the same stories over and over again and there's a lot of um sexual assault and violence and physical violence towards Mm -hmm. women that does tend to pervade these narratives and it sort of makes me wonder why i've been so attracted to these narratives when it is so negative towards women um so that's something that Mm -hmm. i mean I, i have no answers there but it's something that definitely makes me think
1: how how if you don't mind me asking, well, how there's... young were you when you read The Stand?
2: Um, so I was twelve or thirteen.
1: Oh wow! I read that at eighteen. But I, yeah, uh... no, I
2: watched the miniseries <laughs> came out when I was twelve, and I watched that, um, on television, and <laughs> so the miniseries was sort of my first. I think it was probably the first apocalyptic thing I had ever watched, and that first scene in the miniseries where it's going through the facility where the plague started and don't fear the reaper is playing over these images of the dead bodies um that stuck in my head from the age of 12 and I think that that's where I got my obsession with the apocalypse and then obviously reading the book sort of a year after and that sort of just cemented the whole notion in my head so that stephen king's the stand was sort of a huge uh influence on me being mm. super obsessed with the apocalypse
0: well it it does make me think uh you you, you kind of bring up maybe an alternative narratives um I, I recently read octavia butler's um book uh home which is part of i forget the name of the larger series it's a three-part series but it uh, is also set in a post-apocalyptic world but octavia butler being who she was um, the, the protagonist is, a, is, uh, is actually a black woman um, and it, it has a totally different view, although it does also really orient around kind of the, the, the dangers of male toxicity um, and real male aggression and that being both the cause of kind of the, you know, the, the, the state that they're in um, and also the real problem as they're trying to essentially reestablish life on earth. Um, And that it's essentially it's 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 a problem that really is like a self-created problem more so than anything else Um, So I'm we are we are getting on time I we we don't want to go especially not for this particular (laughs) podcast without asking our our Seminal question which actually now that we've examined the apocalypse feels almost maybe Maybe not totally accurate and yet we will still ask it (laughs) which is a Apocalypse or utopia? Um, and in this case, what we're talking about is uh, is the apocalypse. Is the existence of this concept, this pervasive existence of this concept throughout our entire um, civilization and, and multiple civilizations and our species in general, uh, is is it apocalyptic, apocalyptic or is it utopian?
2: I think that depends on what kind of apocalypse we're talking about and what kind of person you are as to, and I guess what your circumstances are as to whether the apocalypse is apocalyptic or utopian. Um, For certain Mm. people, I guess, of certain financial means, the apocalypse could be utopian for them. But what's dystopian and what's utopian for one person is completely different for another. So, yeah, I think Mm. it really does depend on the person and the situation, which isn't a very um, concrete answer, is it? (laughs)
0: <laughs> well, I guess we should ask for you then, personally. So, and and just to make it even more reductive, uh, this is on a one to ten scale. All yeah. oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> exactly. So, on a one to ten scale for you personally, um, so you being the uh, the viewer in this case, uh, yeah. Wh- wh- how would how would you rate that?
2: I'd probably rate it at about a nine. Um. <laughs> on the apocalyptic scale. So the apocalypse for me will probably be very apocalyptic. <laughs> but but at the oh. same time Oh, well, then
0: then it's, then it's then it's a 1 then a or two. it's a 2. Okay, apocalypse okay. is... we've allegedly called the the, the the one the one scale is our apocalyptic side.
2: Gotcha. Um so for me the apocalypse well while I am a writer and don't have a great deal of physical prowess, I did used to be a kickboxer oh, and wow. I'm a cream I'm extremely plucky and tenacious, and kind of lucky. So I feel like I feel like I'd make out okay in the apocalypse. Probably wouldn't be exactly utopian, but you know, it might be a bit of alright. <laughs> I, I
0: feel like that's that is that is what what we what I've quickly come to expect in terms of it. That's a, that's an upbeat view of the apocalypse. Yeah, I, say, I would yeah. definitely
1: I would definitely put my money on the plucky, imaginative, uh, well-prepared kickboxer. <laughs> <Lucky>. Yes. <laughs>
2: Well, I mean, I exactly. haven't kickbox for... Who has already
1: been living in Melbourne.
2: Yeah, I haven't Wisconsin. kickboxed for three years, but I could still take you, I promise. <laughs> <laughs>
3: oh,
0: well, uh, Marley, it has been uh, a pleasure to have you on. Um, we, Toby and I will, will, will subsequently go off and, and throw in our own notes, but he actually has to run off and, and uh, teach a class. So uh, I, we, will, we will we will do the closing here. But um, thank you again so much Um this has really been a, a lot of fun.
2: Oh, it was my pleasure. I've had a great time. Fantastic.
0: Well, so, so just to do the closing here, uh, Marla Jane Ward, you run Pod along with, and you can just rewind the pod to get all the other credentials, but uh, check out Pod. Do you publish on a, like we publish on a random cadence. <laughs> so
2: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but, I try and do an episode a month. So yeah, so it's a monthly kind of podcast.
0: Fantastic. Well, well, check it out. Um, we, I, I look forward to hearing the next one. Is there anything that you want to tease on that coming up?
2: Yeah, so I have, um, in a few episodes' time, I talk with the author Meg Ellison, who wrote an absolutely fantastic book called The Book of the Unnamed sorry, The Book of the Unnamed Midwife. Um, I got to do an interview with her while I was at uh, the World Science Fiction Convention uh, in San Jose last year. Um, And so I'm really looking forward to releasing that episode because she is an absolutely magnificent speaker, a magnificent writer, and she has some really amazing ideas on the subject of the apocalypse. So keep an eye out for that one.
0: Wonderful. Well, thank you so much. And uh, we will talk soon.
2: Thank you.